The events of this past week, they stopped me. I know a lot of people will say that, but these actually stopped me. On Tuesday, I was writing a Realm post, and the hopes of that Realm post was to communicate uh, the Sundays in June, what was coming up. I remember the, the post started out with looking forward to summer and the, the joy that will be had as we gather together. And then I got a text message that said, hey, have you heard what's going on in Texas? I, I said, no. And so I quickly looked online. And at that moment, uh, those reports coming out of Texas, the piece I was writing suddenly felt strange and out of place. I tried to figure out when I would send that post. And each day of the week seemed less and less likely. So you'll see it this afternoon as it comes out. But Texas wasn't the only stop for gun violence in our country this last month. We heard reports from Milwaukee. We heard reports from Laguna Woods. We received reports from Buffalo, New York. And of course, the word that came from Texas. As far as mass shootings go, those, uh, the definition that I saw online was involving four people, not including the shooter. That's just the short list for the month of May. That's only a short list. That's the, the biggest events. But the list goes much longer than those I've just read. But no matter how big, no matter how many people are involved, each leaves behind significant trauma, grief, and misery in its wake. And both the events themselves and the hurt they cause seems to be growing more and more in this nation. We hear more and more reports. So what's going on here? What exactly is going on? If you want an answer to that question, I don't know if I can give you one. There's a lot of different... Uh, thoughts about what that is, and there's a lot of good work that's being done to try to determine that. The better question that we could answer this morning is what we're going to do about it. I think that's a question we can actually wrap our minds around. But these are the questions of the day. What's going on, and what are we going to do about it? Of course, the questions find themselves in political halls and meanderings. Our political leaders continue to be polarized around uh, this issue, each espousing their own representative ideology. And we hear that more and more, and even right after the fact. But let me draw our attention to our text this morning, which I think speaks a word to this. In Reverse Thunder, Eugene Peterson writes this, All parts of creation have been jarred out of the harmonious original and are in discord. The fit between heaven and earth, between creation and creature and creator, is dislocated. Form no longer matches function. Result no longer flows from purpose. Instead, there is pain, travail, sweat, and death. That's what's going on here. That's what's been going on in creation almost from the very beginning. And with this, we have all certainly seen our share of pain and death. And it may not necessarily have come by gun violence. That sense of discord feeling is more present today because of the gun violence. But amidst this backdrop of utter catastrophe, this morning's text speaks a different word. It speaks of a coming celebration, that the catastrophes of life will one day be replaced by a God-sized victory, and the celebratory cheer that will accompany that day will once more affirm something that Peterson observes, that salvation is the answer to catastrophe. Salvation is the answer to catastrophe. Many years ago, I was on a flight to Puerto Rico, 
And I don't know if it was a cultural thing or if it's because there was so much turbulence in that flight, or maybe it's both. But when the plane landed, the cabin erupted into cheers and applause. Have you ever been on a flight like that where people started cheering and clapping? Well, there was a gentleman who was seated just a couple rows ahead of me, and he was right on the aisle side, and he'd been reading his study Bible throughout the entire trip. And so I noticed him just sitting there studying his Bible throughout the entire time. And he looked up during that applause and that cheer, and he must have been moved by what he heard, because in that moment, he shouted, Hallelujah! It was awesome. It added to the whole thing. That's the kind of celebration that we see in our text today. That's the type of celebration. The crowd here employing this Hebrew phrase that's oftentimes translated in places like the Psalms as praise the Lord. And here it is in our text. And it's literally transliterated into our English. We see the word hallelujah right there in the text. We see that in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. Four times. It's also transliterated into the Greek. And that's what the English is following there. And though it seems like this would be a very common occurrence, right? You've heard this word before, right? Hallelujah. You think that'd be a very common occurrence. In the New Testament, that word, that transliterated word, only shows up four times. The four times that we have in this chapter. And so it's very special and particular here for our writer. So what's all the fuss about? Why would you employ such a term here at this point? Well, in verse 1, the first hallelujah that we see is in response to God's decisive victory over evil. It's over evil here. In the victory, God also avenges the blood of his servants. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see his servants in chapter 6 are there calling for vengeance. They're wondering when they're going to be avenged for their, the unjust treatment and their wrongful death. And we see here in chapter 19 it's finally come. Of course, to the modern ear, this all sounds barbaric, right? We're talking about vengeance. What's that all about? Of course, it sounds a bit foreign unless you need avenging. And then it sounds right at home. But the idea here is rooted in one of God's own faithfulness, God's covenant commitments to God's people from the very beginning. The Song of Moses, uh, we hear this back in Deuteronomy. When Moses writes, God will avenge the blood of his children and take vengeance on his adversaries. So in Revelation 6, when we hear those souls calling uh, for this vengeance, wondering how long, the answer comes back, vengeance is coming. And it will come. Victory will come. And God will be the one who is victorious. In verse 3, the second hallelujah marks the total victory that's now pictured with this smoke that's now coming up. And what now becomes not only the period of what has been left behind, but a new age, a new period that now begins. Evil no longer reigns in this new period, this new time that goes on into eternity. And that, of course, warrants a third hallelujah. It encapsulates before and after. Hallelujahs. The crowd going wild, going crazy. And then in verse 6 comes the fourth hallelujah. And with it, that long-awaited moment has come. You may, you may recall those words from Isaiah's prophecy. Namely, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, and then who says to Zion, your God reigns. And here in verse 6, we hear, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. It's come. What's been prophesied, what has been hoped for, that which has been anticipated, 
Revelation 19 pictures that day when it finally comes to full fruition. Hallelujah is an appropriate response. Praise the Lord. And so that day is coming. And the picture we have here from our writer is that of a wedding feast. N.T. Wright observes here that the picture draws on two Jewish traditions. The first being what Wright calls Jewish tradition of Israel as Yahweh's bride, wooed in the wilderness, married at Sinai, unfaithful for many generations, and eventually cast away. But then wooed and won all over again in a covenant renewal that will result in the renewal of the whole creation. That, of course, is joined with a second picture, the picture of feast. I like the picture of feast. Don't you like that? Is there any people here like food? Who likes food? Who likes what you had for breakfast this morning? All right, there we go. There's a lot of people didn't raise their hand on that breakfast one. Well, we'll have to talk later. But the second one stems from the anticipation of a feast that God has prepared. And it's captured in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, a rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And Revelation 19 doesn't, of course, picture a wedding in which a group is squeezed into rented costumes, right? It doesn't picture us uncomfortably posing for pictures or waiting for the next awkward speech. Have you ever been to a wedding like that? I was in a wedding in August one time where we had to wear black tuxedos, and my dress shirt was torn from the rental company, and I couldn't take it back. So I had to wear my coat the entire time outside in the August sun. It was horrible. It was horrible. No, this is a wedding feast that's much different than that. This is a feast that's longed for from the beginning of creation. This is the the hunger that hasn't been satisfied through the lifetime of the saints is now satisfied. So spectacular a moment that the messenger's response is an understated one here in our text. Blessed are those invited to that marriage supper of the Lamb. How blessed indeed. On a few occasions over the years, I've enjoyed a meal with a church member at a respective country club. Has anyone been to a country club? I'm sure there's a few people who have been to country clubs before. And you always have to dress a certain way, right? I remember one time I, had to, I was told, here's how you had to dress. I was a youth director. Oftentimes you have to tell me back in those days how to dress. People should have probably talked to me a couple times. But I, my usual shorts and flip-flops had to be replaced that day with a pair of slacks. And I remember I showed up, dressed up, midweek, which felt weird to me, and we were the only two people in the dining room. <laughs> Why are we dressed up? But well, we had to be dressed up. I remember back east going to a beach club one time, and I was reminded on a number of occasions, do not wear cargo shorts, right? You have to wear just normal shorts. I said, okay, okay. And of course, if you watch Downton Abbey, you can imagine all the different ways you can dress for dinner. But here, this picture of the guests that are going to be on that day at that wedding feast, at that grand celebration, they're going to be dressed in bright linens. They're going to be ones who are wearing the clothing, literally, that marks faithfulness. That they have now been dressed for the occasion. And the meal has been prepared for them and the feast is for them. It's not just some random gathering. There's great intention behind this. That God has planned this from the beginning. That a group would come together and enjoy it to the greatest potential and possibility. This truly is the city of God. The place where God reigns. The place where God's people are united That imagery of marriage is appropriate there. And the place where God's people are now clothed 
in markers or have the ability to be clothed in those markers of faithfulness. As we close this morning, I, I want to draw our attention uh, to a recipe here. Actually, a meal planning. We'll talk about the menu here. Mock turtle soup. Anybody ever had mock turtle soup? I've never had mock turtle soup myself either. Roast Virginia fowl with chestnut stuffing. Baked yams and cauliflower with cheese sauce. Cauliflower with cheese sauce. Do you know what that is? You know what those all are, that menu? That's the final meal of Abraham Lincoln. Why on earth do we know the final meal of Abraham Lincoln? I hear Frank Sinatra's was grilled cheese sandwich. But that was his final meal before going to Ford's Theater. That's what Abraham Lincoln was eating. People, of course, get fascinated with this kind of thing. You do a quick web search. Lo and behold, you find out this information. <laughs> that people are interested in this type of thing. But as curious as we might be about final meals, maybe even our own final meal, Scripture tells us that our final meal isn't the Last Supper. It's not going to be our Last Supper. And when I say Last Supper, I'm not talking about a Da Vinci mural on a wall. But we're talking about that wedding feast that's to come. That final supper, that grand meal that stretches on into eternity. That place of great celebration. That place that we are looking forward to. And as you read the rest of Revelation, you can see all the impact that comes when creation is redeemed and restored, when transformation is complete. The city of God is coming. And one day it will replace even our greatest empires. But even as it's coming, we still pray in worship each week, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the call here in Scripture for us this morning in, in close is not a call for us to fantasize about the future. We're not to be lost somehow in that future. We're to look forward to it for sure. We're to take joy and anticipate that future and what's to come, but we're not to be lost in it. We're not to become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We're to step into those places knowing that that's coming. And since that's coming, we can take action today. That we can live a life, a life that reflects the character of the one who's prepared a place for you and for me. So what does that mean for us in our present predicament? It'd be easy for us just to extend prayers. And for some of us, that might be the most that we do. And that would be something. But that's the easy part. The harder part is for us to change our thinking. The harder part is for us to realize that what is going on in our country right now doesn't work. That we are a broken nation. And there's a lot of solutions that need to be explored and employed in the season ahead. But a lot of solutions require a lot of people. And knowing that one day we will be in that group that will be clothed in faithful linens, can we not be faithful in the day today? Can we not be a people that live in that gracious call to love our neighbor? And maybe that most loving thing is for us to take action, to contact our political figures and representatives, to reach out and talk about but even more so to care for the young people in our nation, in our community. For us to step out no matter how old or how young we might be. For to step into a place where we might draw ourselves into a closer relationship. Getting to know, looking to care, 
looking to stand beside the young people. We see that many of these school shootings are done by young people. It's time for us to stand in that gap. And that's an extension of the thing that we hope for in the future. The day that God comes close to us, closer than we've ever imagined, when all the blinders are off. In this day, might we, by God's power, come close to one another and to provide true care and compassion today and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.